Our reading today is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfil his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. In the centre of the Spanish city of Barcelona, there stands an incredible church building. It's called the Sagrada Familia, the Holy Family, the Church of the Holy Family. And there's nothing quite like it. One critic said it is probably impossible to find a church building anything like it in the entire history of art. And as you look at any part, any side of the Sagrada Familia, you realise that the building is telling a story. You could actually stare at this building for hours and still not take in all the details of this story. And it's a story from the Bible. On one side is the nativity facade and it's dedicated to the birth of Jesus. It has a cypress tree on there that symbolises the tree of life. Then on another side is the passion facade. It's symbolic of Jesus' suffering and his humiliation. And then there's a third side, the, the glory facade, and it's dedicated to Jesus' exaltation, how he rose from the dead and ascended to the place of authority at the right hand of God in glory. Incarnation, humiliation, exaltation. That's the story of Jesus. Does it sound at all familiar? Well, that's what the building tries to tell. And, you know, that is what every church is supposed to do. And I'm obviously not talking about church buildings. And many churches in the city of Manchester don't have a building. Uh, but it's about the quality of the life of the people together that constitutes the church. That the life of our church should tell the story of Jesus to those around. Now, the architect of the Sagrada Familia was a Catalan genius, a man called Anthony Gaudi. He's a deeply religious man, especially in later life, and this building was going to be the crown of his life's work. It was his opportunity to tell the story of Jesus in the middle of a great city. But in 1926, when they'd been building for about 40 years, Gaudi was accidentally knocked down by a tram and he died two days later. Now, the building was far from finished. In fact, it's not finished now. Just imagine what Gaudi might have said on his deathbed to his colleagues. You know that church building, the building I've devoted my life to, the project that will shine the story of Jesus into the middle of Barcelona for hundreds of years. Keep building, finish the work, here are the plans. And they did have the plans after his death and they were able to keep on building. Now, I don't know if any such conversation actually happened during those two days before he died. But I do know that that is exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing in our text today. He's saying to the church in Philippi, keep building, finish the work. 
here are the plans. I don't know if I'm going to be with you again. I might die soon. Now, if you've been with us during this series, you'll know that Philippi, which is in uh, northern Greece, was the first European church plant. Paul, at this point, is in prison. We're not sure exactly where. It might have been Rome. It might have been Ephesus. He doesn't know if he's going to get out. He's heard news through one of the Philippian Christians, a man called Epaphroditus. And so Paul, based on the news from this man and on his own reflection and prayer, writes a letter that may be his last ever letter, his last will and testament. It wasn't, but it might have been. And what does he tell them? You know the church, the building I've devoted my life to serve, the project that will shine the story of Jesus into the middle of Philippi for hundreds of years. Keep building. Finish the work. Here are the plans. And, you know, he would say the same to us at Grace Church Manchester. And he would say the same to any gospel church. And that's why this letter was kept for us in the Bible, so that we would keep building and know how to build and finish the work. Now, there are three powerful lessons for us today as we think about what Paul is saying to our lives and the church that we're part of. And I've just titled these three very simply, Working Out, Shining Out, and Pouring Out. Working Out, Shining Out, Pouring Out. Three things we need to attend to. Firstly, working out. Look again at verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, this passage follows right on from last week, that wonderful soaring passage that tells the story of Jesus, his incarnation from glory, his humiliation down to earth, down to the role of a slave in human form, down eventually to death, even death on a cross, and then his exaltation his resurrection, his ascension to glory. And the immediate implication of all that amazing teaching is actually very practical and very ordinary, which is this. Therefore, as you have always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does all this mean? Firstly, it talks about obedience. This is obedience to the teaching that Paul had given them. It was the same message wherever the apostles went. It was the teaching about the life and the ministry of Jesus based on the Old Testament. And then the scriptures of the New Testament were added by the apostles. It's the tradition that was handed to them. Obedience to God. He says, continue taking the Bible and applying it to every area of your life. And whether or not I'm with you, make sure you keep on obeying God in your lives. As you've always obeyed. Secondly, he says there, work out your salvation. And I think some people will be struggling with this. Many people have struggled with it throughout the history of the church. Hang on, they say. What's this? I thought we were saved by grace. I thought that all we needed to be declared right by God was faith in what God was doing for me. What's all this about working out your salvation? And, you, and you know, we're right to ask that question. Paul is the first person to agree that salvation is a free gift of God, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. He says that in Ephesians chapter 2. And I want to just point out here 
how important that the little words are in the Bible. The key thing to notice is that it's work out, not work for. Work out, not work for your salvation. Now, let me put this in a form of an illustration. If you are working for something, you've got to put in the effort in order to earn it. Uh, it could be a job. You're working the job to earn the money. You're working for money. Or it could be a course, an academic course, study of program at university. You're working for it to get a qualification. You are the one that earned it and so on. Now, when you are working for something, you only get it if you have enough merit, if you've done enough hours, if your work's been good enough quality, if you've passed the course. You earn things. You earn a salary. It's not a gift. But salvation, according to the Bible, is a free gift from God. It is not earned by us. Not even 1% of our salvation is earned by us. Salvation is 100% from God. It is not a cooperation in which we give 50% and God gives 50% and he meets us in the middle. No, no, no. It is all of grace and that means a free gift to demerited people who couldn't earn it. And therefore, Paul doesn't say work for your salvation. He couldn't possibly say that. What he says is work out. Now let's just think about working out for a bit, shall we? I suppose many of us have been thinking about it during uh, lockdown. Some people have got very fit, others not so much. But we have all thought about working out from time to time. Now when somebody goes to a gym or they start following Joe Wick's fitness class on the internet at home, doing bums and tums and whatever other parts of the body you want to work out, or even someone like me who's just started to walk regularly, we're not doing it to earn the right to have a body. Okay? Um, you already have a body. It was given to you by God. And by working out, we're not earning it. We're actually strengthening the body. We're actually making the body more healthy. We're making the body function as it should. We're actually, by working out, we come to enjoy the body more. We're doing what the body was made for. And so you see the difference between working for something and working out. Paul says, he's not saying work for your salvation to earn it. You've already got it. Salvation is God's work from start to finish. So because you have been saved, Christian friend, you now need to take responsibility for your spiritual health and your spiritual welfare. You're the one that has to take responsibility for that by obeying God and working with him. And we need to take this matter very seriously. Paul uh, uses this phrase, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. This is very serious, utterly serious language. Uh, scholar Frank Thielman says this means the seriousness that is appropriate to the task of living out the gospel in such a way that demonstrates they are genuine believers. He's not, Paul is not saying be very, very good because you're not sure if you're really saved and you've got to make up a certain percentage of your salvation or you might end up failing. He's not saying that. What he's saying is this. God has given you this free gift of salvation. You've been saved from sin and from judgment. And God has sent his Holy Spirit into you to give you new life. And now 
take responsibility for your own spiritual growth and welfare. And you know, just in case anybody was starting to think that this is all partly down to us, Paul says as quick as a flash in verse 13, it is, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. In other words, if you have the will to obey God, you know, you desire to do it. And if you have the, the power to obey God, that you can act and do things that keep uh, God's teaching and guidelines for life and please him. Then Paul is saying, you know, it was God that gave you that, that will and that power through the Holy Spirit who now lives within you. So be encouraged, Christian friend. Every time you uh, act in a way that is pleasing to God and uh, obey him in, in whatever ways, big or small, uh, you find that you will be able to do that because... God is already with you. He's the one inside you, helping you, empowering you to do it. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. But God also gives you the freedom in order to do that. And so we have to work out while he is working in. So the lesson, the first point is work, it, work out. Let's take some responsibility for our spiritual lives. We, if we're passive with our spiritual lives, the same thing will happen to us if we're totally passive with our bodies. We become flabby, unfit, unhealthy and unhappy. So let me ask, before we go on to the second point, just to pause for a moment. Is there, as we just take a moment of silence, is there an area of Christian obedience that you have stopped working at and you know it. Is there something in your life right now where you're disobeying God, either by deliberately doing something against his law or by neglecting to do something that God requires you to do? Paul would say, friend, take that very seriously. Not because your salvation rests on it, but because you have been saved. That is no longer appropriate for you. It's no longer healthy. So come back to Jesus. And I think Paul would say, don't just come back on your own. Come back in community. Share it with a trusted brother or sister. Pray it through with them. Repent. Put it behind you and move on. Work out. Now, that's the first point. The second point is shining out. This business of working out our salvation is really interesting. It's not just about us and our personal relationship with Jesus, nor is it just for the benefit of our Christian friends and church family. The big point Paul's making here, and this is very striking, is that Christian character impacts the watching world. Shining out, look with me at verses 14 and following. Do everything, he says, without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. Then, now this is lovely, when, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, the image here is of people whose lives shine 
like stars in the night sky or like lights in the world, luminous points of beauty and of light, of illumination that shine in a dark background and draw people to themselves. And here, notice the darkness is the world without God. He describes it as a, a warped and crooked generation, twisted and depraved, are two other words. Warped and crooked generation. And this is the darkness of human life that is lived for self, lived for greed, what we can acquire and take for ourselves, lived for the lusts of the eyes and the lusts of the flesh, lived for false idols, things, God substitutes that we bring into our lives to try and fulfill us and do the things that only God can do. That is the world in the Bible. And that, Paul says, is the world you've been saved from. And it is warped and crooked. It's twisted. It's, it's de depraved. So there's a really clear contrast here between the life of the Christian community who are like stars and lights and the life of the world which is dark. Now, there's something very important here in the background that we could easily miss and we don't want to skip over it. And it's this. Paul here is using language from the Old Testament, deliberately quoting language that attentive Bible readers would know about from Deuteronomy chapter 32, the, uh, the Song of Moses. And actually, the Bible that we have here, the, the New International Version that the church uses, uh, has this as a footnote. So you may have it in your Bible. Uh, footnote says Deuteronomy 32, 5. It's a song of Moses. It's a song about the experience of the Israelites, the wilderness generation. Remember them? They were in, enslaved in Egypt under an oppressive regime, a brutal tyrant called Pharaoh. We would say a dictator. They were delivered from that slavery by the mighty acts of God. Ten signs. They were rescued, taken out. Through the Red Sea, the sea parted. They came through on dry land. It was like a new creation. And they were brought to Mount Sinai where God made a binding covenant with them. He bound himself to them. He would be their God. They would be his people. And he gave them his law, his good law for life, his instruction and teaching, a way for human flourishing. And he gave them the promise of a land. And all they had to do was walk with God, follow him through the desert for a few weeks it wasn't a long way and there were several hundred thousand of them so it was a huge tribal community going to the promised land Canaan and yet the tragedy was that the wilderness generation who had been saved from Egypt grumbled complained argued and then died Hebrews says their bodies lay in the wilderness they did not inherit what was promised. Only their children went into the land. Here is what Deuteronomy 32 says. By the way, we began our service with the first part of this. But I didn't read the second part because I thought it was a strange, jarring note to sound at the beginning of the service. But here's, here's the whole quote. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong upright and just is he listen they are corrupt and not his children to their shame they are a warped and crooked generation is this the way you repay the lord you foolish and unwise people 
Is he not your father, your creator, who made you and formed you? Now, what Paul is doing here is this. He's saying, that's what Moses said about the children of Israel, the ones who were rescued and complained. They were a warped and crooked generation. And what a way to repay the Lord. And now he's saying to these Philippian church, which has very few Jews in it, that's you are now the people of God. You have a continuity with the Old Testament Jews. You're now God's chosen people. But he says, learn from their mistakes. There's a discontinuity here. We're not to be like the wilderness generation. Don't be like them. Don't don't copy them. Don't imitate their way of life. And specifically, drum roll, don't be characterised by complaining and arguing. <laughs> now, if you're like me, to be quite honest, you're probably tempted to think, is that it? You know, grumbling, uh, arguing, complaining. I mean, are they are they really that bad? You know, they're not that bad sins, are they? Why is that the focus? I mean, if he'd said, you know, do everything without cheating on your spouse, without cheating on your taxes, without defrauding your neighbour and without um, having violent fights in the street. I would get on board with that. But what he actually says is none of those things. He specifically says the key issue for the church is grumbling, complaining, arguing. And that was the key problem with the wilderness generation. And so we have to ask, why on earth is it such a big deal? Why is complaining, grumbling and arguing such a big deal? Well, let's think about it. What are we doing when we grumble and argue? I talked this through with my wife, who gave me a very helpful insight. She said, when we grumble and argue, at heart, we're being selfish. We're putting our own needs and our own desires and ambitions ahead of the needs of others. And if they don't satisfy us, we complain about them and dispute with them. But the Bible's teaching from start to finish, and especially in our Lord Jesus, is that we are to be served servants. We are asked to serve, uh, not to be served. But our hearts always go the other way. We want everyone around to serve us. That was the sin, by the way, that put the devil out of heaven. He didn't want to serve humanity. John Milton puts it this way in Paradise Lost. Satan says, I'd rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. And that's what our hearts are like too. We're saying at root, when we grumble and argue, that God, what God has given me isn't good enough. I want more. I need more. I deserve more. And I haven't been given what I ought to have. I haven't been given my rights. I haven't been given what I deserve. And therefore I'm entitled to grumble and argue about it and moan to those around me. This is serious business if it's what put the devil into hell, isn't it? Tim Keller, Manhattan pastor, talks about a man who said that talk about hell and the fires of hell simply didn't scare him. And it seemed far-fetched and even silly. And of course it does to many people. So Keller read him some lines from the great English writer C.S. Lewis. Hell begins with a grumbling mood. Always complaining. Always blaming others. But you 
are still distinct from it. You may even criticise that mood in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticise the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself, going on and on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. Now, Keller says, to my surprise, the man got very quiet and said, now that scares me to death. Do everything, Christian friends, without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a warped and crooked generation. And my word, we can see that we're in a warped and crooked generation, can't we? I think the reality of people's hearts is now being exposed for all to see more than it has ever been seen before. If you have any engagement, whatever, with social media, if you're in, in plugged into the media and watching uh, the programmes and the interviews that are coming down the, the pipe, or you're reading what people are saying on their blogs, we are now hearing, for the first time ever in history, what most people really think, and it is characterised by this constant grumbling, moaning, arguing and criticism. A grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. That is the spirit of our age. And not only do people do it, they defend it and believe they're entitled to it. In, e in each of us there's something that's growing that will be hell, unless it is nipped in the bud. So the question here, I'm going to pause again uh, before we move to our final point, is how are you doing, dear friend, dear Christian brother or sister, how are you doing with this grumbling and arguing spirit that is so uh, prevalent in our times and is in all of our hearts? Just pause for a moment and think, is there an aspect of my life uh, or a quality in me uh, or a mood that I'm, I'm allowing to happen that is full of criticism and grumbling and complaining about other people? Lord, help me to deal with that now. To be a person who's thankful for all that you've done. You've rescued me like the Israelites. You've taken me out from the Egypt of sin and death. You've brought me through the Red Sea. I'm on the way to the promised land of heaven. All that you've given me, Lord, why should I complain? Because I didn't get X, Y, or Z. Or because so-and-so wasn't nice to me. Working out salvation, shining out the light of the new life that God has given us. And then finally pouring out, pouring out. See, there's a second reason why the Philippians' obedience to God is critical. And here it is, if we read on in, in verse 16. And then says Paul, I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. What is this about? Uh, it's about the acceptable nature of our worship to God, our sacrifice for God. Romans says, 
Now, this is your acceptable worship, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. And obviously it's picture language. It doesn't mean we literally offer our body, but it means that all of us comes in when we enter the kingdom of God. All of us comes under the rule of Jesus. The whole of you is now devoted to God. You become a person whose priorities are to love God and love your neighbour with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. That is an acceptable sacrifice of worship to God, the one who made you, gave you everything and calls you to love him in response. Paul wants to be able to say to these Christians, listen, on the final day, at the end of history, we don't know when it's coming, could be 20,000 years in the future, there will come a day when Jesus will return. This time not in humility as a baby, but in power as a returning king. And before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And on that day, Paul says, I want to be able to, to, to approach Jesus on my knees and present this church in Philippi and say, I'm proud of them. I can boast about them because, you know, in the middle of their context, they were pure and blameless. They weren't characterized by grumbling and arguing. They were grateful saints. And he uses this imagery of his ministry as hard work. He says, I want to be able to boast that I didn't run like an athlete or labor in vain. And then he uses imagery of sacrifice from the Old Testament. There were many different kinds of sacrifices in the Bible. You can read about them uh, in uh, Leviticus. And, but one of the sacrifices was the drink offering, which was poured on top of the sacrifice that is being made. And Paul uses this image of his own death and says, even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice of your faith, I'm really glad, I'm rejoicing, I'm delighted, and you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Even if I die, he says, oh, I'm rejoicing, and so will you, because we will have shared together in the achievement of a wonderful goal, which is the establishment of God's kingdom on earth, a new community of light, a church in the middle of a city that tells the story of Jesus. Pouring out his life for them. So we thought about working out our salvation. We thought about shining out and we thought about pouring out. But I want to come back to that main point again in verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Because this is about the quality of community life in a church. And remember, Philippi is an ordinary local church in Europe. It's just like ours. Uh, there's no serious moral failings in that church as I believe there are no serious moral failings at Grace Church there are no issues with the teaching being false at Philippi and I, I believe there are no issues with the teaching being false at Grace Church but Paul still gives them this very serious instruction fear and trembling remember work it out do everything without grumbling or arguing now why why is it so important here and the answer is because it's mission critical because you are in a warped and crooked generation, you're in the darkness and you're supposed to shine. Whereas the people are warped and crooked, you're supposed to be pure and blameless. For the sake of the people around. So what he's saying is, if we as a church can live together like this, then we will shine like stars in the sky. Like lights in the world. And if as a church we fail to live together like this, 
then we will just be like the Israelites in the wilderness and we will perish or our church will perish. Is that serious? Now let's do a thought experiment for a moment as we close this sermon. Just imagine somebody in your mind's eye who you, the next time we meet physically as a church, you would really love for this person to be sitting with you. And I mean, not a Christian. I'm talking about somebody who currently doesn't believe, but you love this person dearly and you would give anything to have them sitting with you in church, enjoying ministry, uh, walking with Jesus. You'd love to see them saved. You'd love the next time we take the, the Lord's Supper, you'd love to be with this person and pass them the bread and the wine. Think about that person. Very dear to you. Could be a dear friend or a family member or a great colleague or neighbour. You just love for them to know Jesus. And now imagine, again imagine, that finally, after years of praying, this person finally comes along to Grace Church and they start attending some Sunday mornings. And they come in on the Sunday and they, they um, have coffee and they chat to other people in the church. And then they start attending a life group, a midweek group. And they get to know people at the group and they hear the way they talk to each other and the way they talk about things. And they, they then start to get to know them socially. They go to the pub with them, or they have dinner, or they play games, or whatever they do. I wonder, what would that person discover about Jesus from us? Would they discover that Christians, under the surface, are actually just as grumbling and argumentative as the rest of the world? Or would they find that under the surface, our church was split into different factions that believed one thing or another thing and were suspicious and critical of each other. That behind the smile, people actually didn't really get on well and try hard at it, but they didn't resolve it. Would they find that there was a critical spirit there, that people regularly found things to complain about each other or about the church, that Christians basically moan a lot? Would they eventually turn to you and say, I don't know what you see in this religion. These people are no different from anyone else, apart from they want to go to church. Or would they find, would that person find that our church was a community of light? That it shone with a difference that could not be explained without the power of God. That there was a grace and humility in our dealings with each other. That we were committed to each other to care for one another deeply. That we were prepared to overlook offence and somebody getting it wrong. That we were prepared to just overlook that and forgive it. Love covers over a multitude of sins. That we were, gave other people the benefit of the doubt and didn't assume the worst of their motives. That we spoke well to each other and we spoke well of each other. And that if there ever was the need to address an offence, that it was done so with great affection and care for the other person. Because if they saw that, then we will shine like stars in the midst of this generation and anything is possible. Ultimately, the quality of our community life reflects on Jesus. The people of this world will assess Jesus in large part on what they see in the church. The people of this world aren't stupid, you know. They know what Christians believe. And they have a keen sense of how Christians behave. And sometimes, you know, they look at us and they say, do you call yourself a Christian? And they're right to do so. So what do they see 
in Grace Church. And what do they see in you? In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. May I finish with those two questions again? What do they see in Grace Church? What do they see in you? Let's pray. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. We acknowledge as Christians that you are Lord with our tongues. Now, Lord, may we acknowledge it in our lives. Thank you for this powerful word from the Apostle from your spirit help us where we have blind spots to now have sight help us to see the areas where we're not continuing in obedience the areas where we're not working out our salvation and being poured out the areas where we are grumbling and arguing Lord remake us in the image of your son and grant us as a church to shine like stars in the great city of Manchester. Amen.